Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. For a great many listeners, well, except for those who live around me, it's deep, hearty wintertime and a natural chance to take advantage of the weather and cold ferment a lager or two. So on this episode, I sit down with Dave Carpenter, editor of Zymergy, and the author of the recently released Lager Book, a dive into what Dave considers, well, the misunderstood world of chili beers. So break out the blankets, the mulled cider, and sit back for a cold look at a cool beer. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. So, welcome back, everybody, and I have on the line one Mr. Dave Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter, say hi to everybody. Hello to everybody. Why don't you give people just, like, the beery background, the, you know, sort of the biographical details. Why why are you a beer person? Well, I'm a beer person because I uh, got into homebrewing and then never left it. Um, I started homebrewing uh, in 2009 just on a whim, uh, ordered a kit uh, to see what all the fuss was about, thought I might make a batch or two, and then probably lose interest, and now it's taken over my life, so... I started out just brewing in my in my spare time um, as an engineer uh, when I was uh, in, a, in a previous life, and then uh, over the course of about two or three years, uh, there was a lot more beer writing taking place. I started getting some pieces published in Zymergy, and then. I uh, left engineering and pursued a freelance career for a couple of years, during which time I started writing about beer most of the time. 
and then I joined uh, the uh, American Homebrewers Association uh, just about two years ago in January of 2016 as the editor of Zymergy. Yes, that's right. Dave has taken over the brave position of having to edit some of my pieces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun actually to to work with a lot of different writers, uh, people coming at the hobby from different backgrounds and with different uh, approaches to to their craft and to the to the stuff that they do and i really like working with with everyone who contributes to the magazine i also like the fact that you are now part of the troika of mit educated homebrewers yes i don't know how we pulled that off but there we we managed to uh to get to get a few of us uh mit engineers into the into the homebrewing world from memory just off the top of heads the ones i know about are you me and then obviously uh, Gordon Strong. Yeah, that's the three that I'm familiar with. Yeah, and and funny enough, we all we all help out on Zymergy. So one of the one of the oddest uh, magazine staffs ever. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's a really good use of the MIT degrees, in my opinion. Oh, it's an awesome use. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I went to a fancy private college, and now I write about beer. Do you remember like what was the first good beer that you had? The very first good beer that I remember having had in my life was Oktoberfest Märzen from Pauliner Brewing in Munich. And I had I had been a wine person, actually, before I became a beer person. I, I spent uh, years uh, after uh, college and grad school sort of thinking wine was kind of my, my preferred beverage. And then... Uh, Somewhere along the way, I, I was convinced to try uh, an Oktoberfest, and I said to myself, well, this doesn't taste like the um, mega brew that I've had before. I didn't know that word at the time, but it tasted different. And then I started looking for things that were the same color, and uh, Sam Adams was, was the next one on the list, and then I started branching out from there. So it's funny that you, uh, you got started with a German beer, and now you are currently actually in Germany. Yes, I'm uh, living in Berlin for two years. Uh, for my uh, my wife is uh, teaching at the JFK School here, and so we have this wonderful opportunity to be in Berlin for two years. And sort of serendipitous that uh, yeah, my first real uh, memorable beer was a German German lager, and then I ended up uh, years later writing this book about lager and living in the land of lager. So now, spoiler alert, people. Part of the reason why we have Dave on is because you just released a book with a very, very simple title, Logger. Well, it's a very simple t it's a very simple title with a very convoluted subtitle. So it's Logger colon the definitive guide to tasting and brewing the world's most popular beer styles. Well, hey, you know, look, I mean, sometimes you have to be simple and sometimes you have to be complex, right? And uh, I, I know that this is uh, this is from uh, Quarto, which is the uh, same same company that uh, produced both Experimental Brewing and uh, Homebrew All Stars. Uh, did you work with Tom? Tom O'Hearn, that's right. Yep. Tom O'Hearn, uh, for the audience, is our editor. Tom's a, a great beer lover, and I don't think uh, I don't think you can do much better than having Tom help ed edit a beer project. Tom was phenomenal. It was it was great to get to work with him. So. How did the logger book come about? The idea had been percolating in my head for a few years. Uh, the more I got into beer and explored different styles and tried a lot of different uh, different types of beer, I found that I, I enjoyed many of the simpler, you know, Hellas and Pilsner loggers as much as I enjoyed the 
bigger, thicker imperial stout and, and so on. Um, and, and as I learned more about beer and how beer was divided or has been divided into, into ales and lagers, uh, I started to notice both being out and about at beer bars and talking to other people about beer that there was kind of an implicit pre- prejudice against lagers. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people equate or, or have equated the word lager with international pilsner or international pale lager. And so you think uh, a lot of people think about lager and the, the thing that jumps to mind is something that's unremarkable, fizzy, yellow, and probably not that flavorful. Otherwise, educated beer people, uh, I, I encountered people just dismissing this entire family of beer styles. And, and to me, the, there was a lot of opportunity there to say, hey, there's, there's much more to this whole lager thing than just uh, fizzy yellow beer. There's Bach, there's Schwarz beer, there's Hellas, there's, there's Oktoberfest. There's a whole family of styles here. And just because a certain subset of them uh, dominate the international marketplace doesn't mean that we should write off this whole family and just outright say, well, I don't like lager or I don't drink lager. Yeah, there's that sort of craft beer fanatic pushback against the idea of lager yeah, just because of that association. Like, no, that's that's the swill. Right. And and. You know, in the in the UK, for and I, I don't know if the, the terminology is is still if it's still the case, but you would order a pint of lager to mean I want a Carlsberg or something like a Carlsberg. And in in the U.S., you have the Great American Lager and uh, you know a fine Pilsner beer emblazoned upon these mass market beer labels, and I think it creates a lot of confusion. Well, that would never happen. <laughs> so now. Speaking of confusion, I know that there are myths out there about lagers, and you cover five of them, right? Yeah, that was one of the things that I really wanted to set out in the very beginning of the book as to the reasons that I, I wrote the book. And, you know, these were actually the things that I, I outlined in the in the book proposal as what I really wanted to accomplish with the book. I, you know, I wanted it to be a book that was about brewing, but not just a brewing book. I wanted it to be a book that was about history, but not just a history book. I really wanted to tell the story of this of this family. And I thought that starting the, the way to start with that was to try to abolish some myths. So, yeah, I start the book with the five myths about lager that we all need to stop believing and perpetuating. Let's blow up these myths. Tell me about them. Let's go through them. So the first myth is, we've already touched on that, is that lager is thin and yellow. And I, that's so easy to to fall into, again, when you have the Great America Lager, uh, a fine Pilsner beer, lager beer at its best, all emblazoned upon mass market beers, then it creates some confusion on the part of the consumer. And it, and again, you know, in the in in a pub in the UK, if you order a pint of lager, you're probably going to get something that tastes like a Carlsberg, if not a Carlsberg itself. In the popular uh, psyche, there's this idea that lager is synonymous with something that's thin and yellow. Uh, the second one kind of rides on that same that the first one's coattails, which is that lager is synonymous with Pilsner. And that that one is one that's maybe a little less egregious uh, because Pilsners can be very good beers. But lager is much broader. You know, lager is a family. It's, Pilsner is one member of that family, but lager is a, a much larger family that includes everything from, you know, Hellas on, on the very lightest end all the way to Eisbach, uh, for, you know, freeze-concentrated freeze Bach on the, on the upper end. And there's a lot in between. Pilsner is one member of, of a family. The, the third myth is that lager is less flavorful than ale, and that's that's perhaps the, the most irritating one for me. You see these 
big hoppy beers or big bourbon barrel aged beers and for whatever reason and and I you know I have some theories about why but they tend to be ales and there's no reason you can't do that with with a lager and in fact many breweries uh, many craft breweries are starting to experiment with that and so anything you can do to an ale you can also do to a lager uh, you know some fermentation uh, details notwithstanding but I think that that was one of the big myths that I wanted to to abolish. And I, one of the things I tried to do in the book is say, you know, if you tend to gravitate towards these kinds of ales, then maybe try these types, kinds of lagers to sort of create some some kind of gateway lagers in there, depending on you know what kind of ales you tend to gravitate towards. The fourth one is that uh, lager is easier to brew than ale. That one's interesting because of the timing. The you know AB InBev had the the big uh, Super Bowl commercials where you know they talked about you know brewed the hard way and they did it with this sort of bravado and it was you know it was it was in poor taste in, in my opinion. But there's a little bit of a kernel of truth to that um, that lagers are harder to brew than ales. And so you know you you talk to to beer geeks and. And sometimes, you know, if, if somebody has an appreciation for how beer is made, then there's an acknowledgement that that yeah, these lagers can be more difficult to to refine. But there's there's a larger, I think, misconception that oh well, what uh, what you know, Bud Miller and Coors and you know the other big uh, brewers do is somehow easy, like the easy way out. And and in fact, brewing the lighter the lager gets, the lighter the beer gets in general, the harder it is to to brew it with. Uh, you know, without off flavors and, and to have it taste the same depending on where you brew it in the country if, if your brewery operations are split across several sites. So even though I don't agree with the the way that message was delivered and, and you know, the, the sort of nature of, of, you know, of the message, I think there there's a hint of, of some truth in there. And then finally, that lager has less alcohol than ale. You know, Russian imperial stouts are kind of the flagship high alcohol ales. And there are loggers that can easily, you know, hold their own next to those. So, you know, you look at, uh, I think the classic example is Sami Klaus, which is, you know, brewed every year. And I think the uh, Malta's Falcons have a, a great clone recipe for that. Yes, we do. The Falcon's Claws. <laughs> the Falcon's Claws. Uh, yeah, Schloss Eggenberg Brewery in Austria brews it every year traditionally on the 6th of December. And it ages for a year and comes in at you know 14 or so percent alcohol. One of the things I really wanted to do with the the book was to take some of these myths and, and chop away at them. And not necessarily even to um, to promote lager over ale, not by any means. Uh, I drink I drink both. And I think I think both families are, are great beers. But to, to give a little bit of love to this this kind of sometimes maligned half of the the beer world one of the things you touched on there was how everybody kind of has this notion in their head or this cross correlation between the idea of lager and pilsner or lager right. and and the pale beers like carlsberg how did we go from a beer being you know really first produced in the 1850s to now suddenly we have that association where pale lager has dominated the whole beer world well i think there are, there are a few things at play um and, and you know you have to look back to to the the mid 1800s uh, when when the first pilsner uh, came to be. It was the world's first pale lager, and it was a it was a game changer. It was a revolutionary beer. Uh, the world had never seen anything like it, and it swept across Europe, and people got really excited about it. And so it uh, it forced forced Munich breweries to change the way that they brew. The Munich Brewers Guild, whenever pilsner uh, was first invented, they said, "Well, the world the world is is going 
going to focus on these dark beers on Munich Dunkel, essentially, uh, that Dunkel will continue to be the beer of Munich. And after a little while, after enough pressure, uh, they were forced to develop their own pale lager, uh, Helles, which came to be the, you know, the Munich response to Pilsner. And so that's, you know, that's one example of Pilsner's impact. And then you look at uh, immigration, at uh, these German and, and Czech immigrants coming to the to the U.S. in the in the 19th century, and they brought their brewing traditions with them. And that very well could have been any other brewing tradition, but it just happened that the 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 U.S. was receiving large numbers of people from Germany and and what is now the Czech Republic, and they brought their their brewing knowledge with them, uh, and in some cases brought their brewers yeast with them. And I think in in the U.S., one of the things we always have to keep in mind is that the the climate that we have in in the continental U.S. is not really if you if you don't have air conditioning, it's not really uh, an ale climate. So if you're if you're in Milwaukee in the middle of the summer and it's it's hot and humid out, you probably don't want to sip on a mild ale. Um, the and, and so I think these uh, these pale lagers came to dominate the U.S. in part because of our climate, and uh, and so uh, with with U.S. successes. Uh, um, Economically, in the early part, early and mid part of the 20th century, uh, I think that just naturally promoted the beers that were being brewed in the U.S. towards uh, kind of the the norm, the, the the standard by which all others are judged. If I'm remembering my history correctly, so you get Grohl in the 1840s producing the Pilsen, right, and then by the eight what like 1851 or something, Wagner in Philadelphia. Generally, uh, historians credit Wagner in Philadelphia as having brought lager to the U.S. There, there are some conflicting uh, accounts, and there does seem to be some uh, suggestions that it could have been earlier and elsewhere. But, but even if you just take it at face value and say, "Yeah, we're, it was Wagner, and it was in the mid 1850s," that's yeah, we're talking like ten years. And keep in mind, you know, I mean, that's during a period of time when it takes you months to get across the ocean from Europe to the U.S. So. And, and who knows what shape your yeast is, is in by the time you get there. And so now so we get up into the mid-20th century. We get World War II happening. I know there's always the story that people like to tell that uh, American brewers start to dumb down their products or blandify their products uh, in an attempt to try and widen the market and get women involved with beer and, uh, fa- and more factory workers and that sort of stuff. Any truth to that? I think there's a I think there's a grain of truth. I think there's even you know maybe a piece of pie of truth, but it's not the whole pie. Uh, there's uh, I think there are a lot of things that 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 propelled American lager towards uh, towards the you know the light watery end of the spectrum, and and one is. Uh, uh, is yeah widening the market. Um, if if uh, you have you know the the men off fighting in in Europe and and the women are working in factories. The uh, the the brewers saw that as a as an opportunity and they you know for better or worse they they marketed a lighter version of the uh, of what had been brewed before. But there were I think there are other things at play too. Um, we had rationing during during the wars and part of that was. Uh, was making ingredients available that uh, wouldn't have otherwise been um, made available. So, uh, so I think that that plays a role. Now, I mean, we get to 
pale lager, pilsner, American pilsner, you know, dominating the American scene, the whole sort of blandification movement, and then eventually the consolidation of the industry to to the 1970s when we have our glorious rise of, you know, the initial craft beer. I mean, it seemed, I mean, it seemed like, as we alluded to earlier, at least a lot of the early craft beer attitude was, you know, sort of a big middle finger to big beer. And so part of that went, you know, hey, you know, we're doing ales because that's not what you guys are doing. Do you know, like, like, what were there any early attempts at loggers? Because, I mean, obviously, there's also the speed advantages to doing ales, which is good for a small business. Right. And I think that's I think that's important to, to consider is that uh, in, if you're a small brewery and you need to get product out to, to support yourself, then loggers may not be the way to go. You need to turn turn beer around. And so uh, if, if loggers are taking taking up fermentation tanks for weeks as opposed to, to ale, which you know, depending on the style could could be a week or two um, before you move it to the bright tank and, and, and carbonate it. Yeah, that's going to be a consideration. But I think it's interesting that if you look at the uh, kind of the f- three of the big founders uh, or, or, you know, big, big players in, in American craft beer, you've got You've got Sam Adams, Anchor, and uh, Sierra Nevada, and you have in that in that group you have uh, a lager, you have uh, a, a hybrid ale lager, uh, and you have an ale, a pale ale from Sierra Nevada, a steam beer from Anchor, and a full-fledged classic lager from from Sam Adams. Uh, and so, what there is a, a a piece in the book about about the story of of Sam Adams and of and of Anchor as well. And how uh, we have these kind of iconic American breweries that were really starting out with with loggers, and so yeah, there there were definitely attempts in the beginning to brew loggers. Now they, I think, they set themselves apart. You know, if you look at at what was Santa, Sam Adams Boston Lager is and was, it is a remar- uh, a remarkably different beer from your standard American lager, and so it it's closer to more of like a, a Vienna style uh, or an amber lager. And that's something that, that people were not used to necessarily. And so uh, even, even though today, uh, you know, we, we sort of take Sam Adams for granted. I think it's, I think it's important to think about, you know, what, what they were doing in the mid eighties. It was really quite avant-garde c- considering the, uh, the landscape that they were operating in. Uh, and I remember even for years, even up until, you know, say around 2000, there were a lot of times where you'd go walk into a place and literally the taps would be Bud, Bud Light, Miller Light, and Sam Adams. And that Sam Adams tap was your was your savior. Well, and you know, I, I still sometimes jokingly refer to Sam Adams as my go-to airport beer because you can almost always find it uh, in in an airport. And that's that's quite remarkable uh, to be, you know, it's you know, 2017 now. And it's it's hard to go into an airport these days and not find at least a couple of craft beers, maybe maybe just bottles in the fridge. But what we enjoy today in terms of diversity and selection really is if, if you didn't experience uh, beer during during the drought, uh, it's 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 kind of hard to imagine. Oh, yeah. No, there there were a lot of times when that that Sam Adams tap was my rope to a drowning man. <laughs> Now, I do know that, like, as we talk to brewers around the country, you know, and we go interview them, one of the questions that we always ask them is, hey, you know, what's what's something that you wish people would drink or what's something that you long to drink? And, yeah, we're talking to a lot of folks who are responsible for some very flavorful ales and whatnot. And it's amazing to me the number of times that the response comes back that it's something like a Pilsner, a Coors <laughs> right. Banquet. There are a lot of these brewers out there who are making these 
big bold ales who they come back at the end of the day and they're like, I I just want to I want a pilsner. Well, and you know one of the things that encouraged me to finally move on the idea for this book that I'd been the idea had been in my head for for a couple of years and I started working on a on a proposal and it it had various stages of completion but I, I attended the Great American Beer Festival in um, I want to say it was twenty. It's 2014 or 2015, I can't remember, um, but it was, it was around that time. And there was I uh, at one of the sessions there was a symposium about about the rise of, of Pilsner, and it was hosted by Sam from from Dogfish Head, uh, Vinny from Russian River, and and Matt from Firestone Walker. And I just thought it was really remarkable that you had these three guys up here who are, are known for um, some of the, the most sought-after beers in the country, and they're sitting here talking about Pilsner. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, there really is something to this. Uh, it's not just it's not just me who's who's seeing this. That that they're you know it's what brewers are drinking. You know, they ask, what do you what do you drink at the end of a long day when you've been brewing? That's yeah, a Pilsner, and and you see that uh, time and time again. Well, and I know just from my own anecdotal evidence running around here in L.A. this past summer, for instance, I saw a greater instance of craft breweries in the area carrying a cream ale, which is a hybrid, mm-hmm. a Pilsner or yep. a Hellas. And yeah. it makes perfect sense because if you think about L.A., yeah, during the height of summer, we are not ale country. <laughs> right. And and yeah, I think there's there's a lot a lot to that that. So much of of what I I enjoy about craft beer is is not just the the beer itself, but but the environment in which it's consumed and the people with whom you consume it, and that sense of place and and environment are are key to to that. So yeah, if it's a if it's well as it is today, the twentieth of December, uh, if it's the you know bordering on the solstice here, yeah, I want to sit by the fire with my imperial stout and sip on that, and that sounds great. If it's uh, if it's hot and humid out, then I'm probably going to go for something a bit lighter. With lager kind of making what I would say a little bit of a growth push in terms of craft beer breweries, have there been changes to techniques that that people are using that you think are making it more feasible for craft breweries to to do this, or or are they just finally biting the bullet and and dedicating the tank space? I think there are some techniques that that uh, kind of move the process along, and I uh, you would uh, know more about some of the the experiments than I would uh, that are taking place among homebrewers. But I think um, at least at the homebrew level, uh, you know, Tasty McDole's method of uh, or the method he's advocated for of of kind of ramping up fermentation temperature and turning out lager in uh, you know a couple of weeks uh, certainly is made i think lager more accessible to a lot of homebrewers who might otherwise be intimidated by it and there's probably some uh, translation of that into the professional base as well professionals also have the luxury of, of fermenting under pressure and when you when you expose uh, uh, lager yeast to you know a higher pressure environment you can you can be a little more relaxed with your temperature uh, and, and I don't know I don't understand the the science behind that uh, but it seems to be the case that you can get away with you know maybe five to ten degrees Fahrenheit warmer uh, by increasing the top pressure oh that's interesting yeah and, and we're seeing more people start to play around with spunding valves and that sort of stuff even on the homebrew level to, right to try and artificially increase the pressure in the tanks and then even some of the yeast companies have you know, they're fast ferment loggers that are designed to work under pressure. I'd be curious to see if that's going to ha- have more and more traction over time. Are there any any other things that you think that 
homebrewers need to know or think about if they want to make better lager at home? I think ultimately, you know, one of the great things about homebrewing is you you can make the beer that you want to drink. And so I, I always want to be a little careful about I, I, about offering advice because if you if you like the beer that you drink, then you're making beer the right way, is is my opinion. So I don't want to get too you know too too far down the road of of giving advice, but I think in my my personal experience, patience is part of it and and obviously there's there's a certain element associated with of patients associated with lager brewing simply because historically you would you would allow it to lager for you know several weeks uh, or months even at at cold temperatures well i mean i i used to have my my oktoberfest my martin that I would brew in march and right. lager all the way through till late september and that's the you know that's the traditional way to do it I will say that I've brewed some some really great lagers that I never actually put them in cold storage after fermentation, mainly because I forgot about them. You know, I I had them at, at, uh, at lager fermentation temperature, pulled the pulled the fermenter out uh, to to make room for something else, and never got around to putting the you know into into near freezing temperatures. Got lazy and said, "Well, I'm just going to keg this and and see." And ended up really enjoying the beer. I don't know if it would have won any medals, but uh, it ta- you know, the the one I'm thinking of in particular is a, is a standard Bach that I just let sit at room temperature for uh, five or six weeks before I kegged it, and, and it was fantastic. So I think I think a bit of patience uh, is warranted. Um, and I think on the yeast side, uh, I see a lot of advice at, that advocates warm pitching with with a smaller pitch rate uh, on and then once you see some activity in the in the in the fermentation vessel to then you know cool down to to, to what we normally think of as lager temperatures so you know 45 to 55 degrees fahrenheit and i've personally never made for me a satisfactory lager doing that now i may be doing something wrong but in in all of the lagers that i've brewed the best ones that that I've, I've turned out have had a really big pitch of yeast at the beginning and pitching cold you know even on the cold side of the fermentation temperature so if i i tend to ferment most of my lagers in the 48 to 52 range uh fahrenheit and so i'll typically pitch it at 45 to 46 let it let it rise up to 48 to, to 52 or so and but I just pitch a really big uh, a culture of yeast, and then and I keep it at that temperature uh, for I don't know a half to two thirds of uh, attenuation, and then the last half to two thirds I'll start to to bring the temperature up uh, until I get to if I'm going to do a diacetyl rest, then I'll I'll do it. I, I think on that that front end is the really critical part uh, in my experience, and so. I think being willing to devote the the time and resources to to make sure you've got a really good pitch of yeast at the very beginning that you can start cold, and for me that's even meant sometimes leaving the fermenter overnight to cool down because my I, I chill with with uh, tap water and uh, I'll do an ice kind of I'll, I'll use use ice to to get the the tap water down with a pre chiller, but I can never really get it down to. 45. And so I, I'm not afraid to leave it overnight if necessary in, in a cold space to get it down to that temperature. You do run some potential risk of contamination, but that's that's a risk I'm personally willing to take. Uh, I've never had a, 
contamination doing it that way, but I also don't believe in proof by anecdote. So I, I think that uh, you figure out what works for you. And in, and in my case, that's that's meant a, a large pitch on the cold end. I'm very much in line with those ideas. I, I would I would much rather start all of my beers colder and allow fermentation to actually provide heat. I mean, I think the problem is I know a lot of the yeast manufacturers and a lot of the old advice about, you know, that pitch warm and then cool down to lagering temperatures was all about, you know, trying to get yeast growth going, right? So you can right. get that croissant up and everybody goes, oh, croissant. Okay, good. We're fermenting. But my problem is I think once you get a ferment running like that, unless you have incredible cooling capacity, you can't get that beer to crash the temperature while it's actively fermenting. I think there's too much heat being produced. I, I agree. And there's so much, so much that happens in that growth phase. Uh, that's to me, that's the that's the really critical phase of, of any beer, and and with with lager yeast, um, it you just you have to have it in that uh, at the very least a, a semi cold environment. So I, I think I think you're you're totally right there. I know that listeners out there will know that like Marshall over at Brewlosser and Company, they've done a lot of you know higher temperature shoddy type uh, lager fermentation type stuff. But if you're going classical old school lagering methods, and again I, I say it with any fermentation, start cool, let the yeast go. I agree, and I I think you know with respect to the work that that uh, you and Denny do and that Marshall does, I I love all of this citizen science that's happening in home brewing right now. I I I think it's wonderful, and first of all, for me, it's it's great material for the magazine, but also uh, it's a lot a lot of the information that applies to a professional brewery won't necessarily scale to the homebrew size. And so I think seeing what works and what doesn't is really important. And just because something's always been done a certain way doesn't mean that you have to do it that way if you find a method that you're happy with. And I think that's true with, with loggers too. I've you know, I tend to go kind of the classical route, but I'm not afraid to to ramp the fermentation temperature up a little faster, kind of the, the way that that uh, Tasty advocates. And so, uh, it's it's all about finding the way that you like to brew. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a hobby after all. If you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Exactly. One last uh, thing before we uh, close up for today, you had some thoughts on hydrogen sulfide versus uh, DMS and getting people to understand the difference between the two. Yeah, and I, the reason I even bring that up is it's something that I have. I struggled with a little bit as I was uh, learning to brew lagers, and and for me, maybe it's this: the, the, both of them have the word sulfide. You have hydrogen sulfide and dimethyl sulfide, and to me, those are both you know they're both sulfur, and so um, I would tend to mix them up in 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 decomposing uh, a beer whenever I would taste it, and and so I think when you're tasting your lagers or, or really any any pale beer or any beer for that matter, knowing where's that sulfur coming from is, is, uh, is important. And so loggers, especially pale loggers will often have some sulfur character in, in most cases, it's a fairly low level. Generally a, a higher sulfur character is, is going to be out of style, but, uh, it's important to remember that, that loggers are from, because they're fermented cold and, and thing cold liquids tend to hold on to dissolve gases a lot better than warmer liquids you've got things that are that would normally come out in an ale fermentation and you know blow out the top of the fermenter in a you know a, a wild burst of airlock activity and lager fermentation is just it's slower and it's it's cooler and and so it holds on to more of those those flavor components one of which is uh, hydrogen sulfide 
which lager yeast tends to produce in larger amounts than than most ale yeasts do. And it's the classic, you know, you, a lot of people describe it as rotten egg, but it doesn't necessarily have to be rotten egg. If you've if you've ever made, you know, hard-boiled a bunch of eggs and put them in the fridge and then you go open the fridge and you kind of get bowled over by uh, by the scent coming out, that's, that's hydrogen sulfide. Or if you've ever visited a, a national park or somewhere with geothermal features, the, that smell coming out of the mud pot, that's also hydrogen sulfide. And so it, it's that sort of classical egg smell, if you will. And DMS, uh, dimethyl sulfide, we associate, let me back up, hydrogen sulfide is is associated with fermentation. It's a yeast byproduct. Dimethyl sulfide comes from the precursor, uh, S-methylmethionine or SMM, uh, whatever it stands for, SMM, uh, is the precursor that, that is in, uh, in all malt, but uh, the kilning process kind of drives, drives it away. But if you're using a very lightly kilned malt, like Pilsner malt uh, or some of the lighter uh, pale malts, then you'll get uh, some potential for some dimethyl sulfide in, in the finished beer. Whenever I first did a, a flavor tasting of kind of doctored beer of um, well, what is you know what does di- dimethyl sulfide really taste like? The classic descriptor is is canned corn or cooked cabbage. I just always call it Rolling Rock. <laughs> well, I, I I personally when I tasted the 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 doctored beer with DMS at a very high fl- concentration. What I got was more like canned tomato sauce, or uh, my my coworker Steve Parr had a great analogy. It, it it smelled like freshly cut pumpkin, like when you slice open a pumpkin and you sniff the inside of it. And when he said that, that's what really resonated with me. And now, whenever I'm tasting beer, that's that's more the association that I get from DMS. And so. I think if you taste uh, a lager that has some sulfur character, don't necessarily assume it's dimethyl sulfide. And because people, you know, the the old the, the advice is always, you know, boil your wort for longer to drive off DMS. And it may be the case that the sulfur you're detecting is not actually DMS. It might be hydrogen sulfide, especially if if you're talking about a lager, and and some of the yeasts throw more more sulfur than others. So just being aware of the difference between those two, so that you're not kind of critiquing yourself into a corner when you're trying to figure out what, you know, what went wrong in your beer. Uh, remember, sometimes those flavors are, are good things, but I don't think most sulfide characters are ever <laughs> are, are ever actually wonderful things in a lager. No, no. You'll get just a little whiff of it from time to time in, in some of the, the lighter, like German Pilsner and so forth. But it should be really more of a hint, you know, that like, oh, they're there was a lager yeast involved here at some point, you know, it was in the same room as a lager yeast as opposed to uh, a knock you over kind of character. Dave, any last thoughts on lager and why people should uh, should explore lager and why they should buy lager, the book with the really long subtitle? <laughs> well, the... Um the book, I, uh, I again, it's not a, a book that tries to do any one thing uh, in, to completion. So there's history, but it's not really a history book. There's brewing advice, but it's not really a brewing book. It's kind of a, a little bit of a lot of things. And so I think if you're interested in in beer history in general, uh, but particularly how this family of beers came to be, I think there's there's something that that people can really uh, dig into in there. Uh, in terms of what uh, you know, why people should drink more lagers. Uh, I think what American craft brewers are doing with lagers is is particularly worth mentioning. Uh, 
there's a lot of tasting notes in here, and, and the goal was was not to create a book of tasting notes, but um, I found that there were American craft brewers who were doing things that were as good as or better than the uh, you know their European counterparts, particularly when you consider freshness. But there were also things that uh, they're doing that are wouldn't be allowed. And and you know if you're if you're in Germany, you've you've got to adhere to the Reinheitsgebot. You can't put spruce tips into your pilsner. And there's a recipe in the book for for short brewing companies, Imperial Spruce Pilsner, which is wonderful. It, uh, it you know it, it, if if you like forests and you like pilsner, then you're going to love that beer. And I, there, you know, there are barrel-aged Baltic porters and and fruited lagers and and things that that you wouldn't really find in the old world. And so I think that we're just turning the corner with with craft beer and what craft brewers can potentially do with lagers. I think there's a lot of potential, and and it's pretty exciting to see where we where we head. I will really stress out on that freshness point that you made. I used to think I didn't like pilsners. And then I had Trimmer's Pills directly off the tap in the brewery in Berkeley. And that was an that was an eye-opening experience. Yeah. A lot of these lighter lagers in particular don't travel well. They they really need to be consumed fresh. And uh, for whatever reason, Europeans still package a lot of their uh, lagers in uh, green glass. I don't know why that's the case. But in, in many cases, you can get uh, as good or better an example of you know, some of these classic lager styles from your local craft brewery uh, versus having something that's you know spent several weeks or months on a boat. The boat is not your friend. It is not, no. Well, Dave... Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about Logger and the book and some of the history and some of the facts and you know, really trying to help bust some of those myths about Logger. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of Dave's Logger myths and what he thinks you and I need to look at when we're thinking about cold fermentation. So how about it? Are you going to look at a logger while it's still cold? Let us know. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every other homebrewing forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause which for this part of the year is Habitat for Humanity. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.